Fellowship Audio Podcast is a production of Fellowship Audible Podcast Group in association with Red Circle. My fellow Singaporeans, local COVID-19 cases have increased sharply over the past few weeks. All of you are understandably anxious. Many have found it difficult to keep up with new policies and changes to measures. I understand your concerns and frustrations. Some ask, what happened to our plans to build a COVID-resilient nation? Has the government changed its mind? Are we on track to reopening our society? Yet, others ask, why are there so many cases? Should we not be fully locking down now? These are all valid questions. Hence, I've decided to speak directly to you to explain our current situation and what has changed. Our strategy for this phase of the pandemic and our path forward to a new normal. I want to share my thoughts and concerns with you because unity of purpose and hearts is crucial to get us through the next few months. Last year, at the start of the outbreak, 
we were dealing with an unknown disease. Globally, there was little scientific knowledge about COVID-19. Our own experience from SARS gave us some idea where to start. As we learned more about the virus, we adjusted our strategy to the evolving situation. Our original approach was to do our utmost to prevent Singaporeans from being exposed to COVID-19. We tightened safe management measures, SMMs, as much as necessary to bring cases down to a very low level. We judged this the best way to minimize serious illness and deaths. Zero COVID was the right strategy at that time. Our population was not yet vaccinated. People had little or no immunity against COVID-19. The consequences of catching the virus were serious. But because the virus was not so infectious then, our measures could work to break the chain of transmission. The strategy succeeded. We avoided the huge loss of lives that many countries saw. We have one of the lowest COVID death rates in the world. At the same time, we planned ahead and secured vaccine supplies. Vaccines were a game changer, a safety vest for each of us in this pandemic. Our national program to vaccinate everybody has been very successful. Thanks to your trust and cooperation, we now have one of the highest vaccination rates in the world, almost 85%. This has greatly enhanced our protection against the virus. Our data, as well as data from around the world, clearly show that vaccination sharply reduces the risk of serious illness. The vast majority of local cases, more than 98%, have mild or no symptoms. Only 2% or less developed more serious illnesses. Of these, 0.2% died or needed ICU treatment, just two out of every 1,000 cases. The rest of the serious cases have needed oxygen supplementation for a few days. In other words, with vaccination, COVID-19 is no longer a dangerous disease for most of us. But the emergence of the Delta variant has put us in a changed situation. The Delta variant is highly infectious and has spread all over the world. Even with our whole population vaccinated, we still will not be able to stamp it out through lockdowns and SMMs. Almost every country has accepted this reality. Furthermore, even if we manage to keep COVID cases down through stringent SMMs, the virus will spread swiftly again as soon as we ease up. This is especially true in Singapore, precisely because of our zero COVID strategy. The majority of us have never experienced an infection or, as doctors say, we are COVID-naive. As a result, our natural immunity is low. Even if we've been vaccinated, we are still at some risk of getting infected. This is why we must be prepared to see quite many COVID cases 
for some time to come. Yet, Singapore cannot stay locked down and closed off indefinitely. It would not work and it would be very costly. We'd be unable to resume our lives, participate in social activities, open our borders and revive our economy. Each time we tighten up, businesses are further disrupted. Workers lose jobs. Children are deprived of a proper childhood and school life. Families are separated for even longer, especially families with loved ones overseas and extended families who've not been able to come together. All these cause psychological and emotional strain and mental fatigue for Singaporeans and for everyone else here with us, including our migrant workers. Therefore, we concluded a few months ago that a zero-COVID strategy was no longer feasible. So we changed strategy to living with COVID-19. Living with COVID-19 has not been a smooth and easy journey. In August, after we reached 80% vaccinations, we eased up the heightened alert. We expected cases to go up as more people resumed activities and interacted with one another. But the numbers went up more sharply than we had anticipated because the Delta variant was so infectious. Initially, our healthcare system was still able to cope, but we worried that it would come under significant strain, and it has. So have our medical personnel. As cases grow exponentially, the number of serious cases will also grow in step. And when the number of cases grows very large, even 2% of a very large number will translate to many patients needing hospital and ICU beds. Our healthcare system would rapidly be overwhelmed. That's why last month we tightened up our restrictions. It was to slow down the growth in cases so that we can ease the burden on our healthcare workers and stabilize our healthcare system. We're using this time to further expand healthcare capacity and strengthen our case management so that we can better identify COVID patients with mild symptoms to recover at home and make sure we can properly care for those who fall seriously ill, as well as continue to attend to the many non-COVID patients who also have urgent medical needs. We must press on with our strategy of living with COVID-19. What next steps must we now take? To start off with, and most fundamentally, we need to update our mindsets. We should respect COVID-19, but we must not be paralyzed by fear. Let us go about our daily activities as normally as possible, taking necessary precautions and complying with SMMs. With vaccinations, COVID has become a treatable mild disease for most of us. This is especially so if you are young, or even if you are not so young, but fully vaccinated. The threat of COVID is now mainly to seniors, 60 and above if you are not vaccinated, 
or 80 and above, even if you are vaccinated. So for 98% of us, if we catch COVID-19, we can recover by ourselves at home, just as we would if we had the flu. That's why we are shifting to relying heavily on home recovery. It will be the norm for COVID cases. You can get well in a familiar home setting without the stress and bother of admitting yourself into a care facility. If most of us can recover at home, it will greatly ease the strain on our hospitals, doctors and nurses. It will free up badly needed beds for COVID patients who are at high risk of becoming seriously ill, especially the elderly. Of course, if you have vulnerable family members at home, you can go to an isolation facility to recover. I know many people still have concerns and anxieties about home recovery. They are fearful of the disease itself. They fret about the risk to the rest of their household. They also worry whether they'll receive adequate care and support at home, should they get worse. I understand your anxieties. Let me assure everyone on home recovery that you will get the care and support you need throughout your recovery journey. Earlier, our service delivery fell short, but we have worked hard to fix this and put things right. If at any point you need to be admitted to hospital or COVID treatment facility, we will get you there. Next, since COVID has become a manageable disease, we should now drastically simplify our health protocols. No more complicated flow charts. People must be clear what to do if they test positive or if they come into contact with someone who is infected. We also need to know what we can do ourselves. Each one of us needs to take personal and social responsibility. Test ourselves as necessary. Self-isolate if we test positive. Consult a doctor if we have symptoms. Knowing what to do, we'll no longer find COVID such a scary disease. Let's all do our part to keep everyone safe, in particular, the vulnerable ones among us. The group that worries me most is the elderly, especially those who are not yet vaccinated. Thus far, we've managed to keep our fatalities very low. But sadly, even that has meant 142 deaths so far. Nearly all were elderly and with pre-existing medical conditions. There were uncles and aunties in their 60s, 70s and 80s living in our community. A disproportionate number are unvaccinated seniors. They account for barely 1.5% of the population. But they make up two-thirds of those who needed ICU care or died. The remaining one-third were vaccinated seniors. We feel every single loss keenly. My deepest sympathies and condolences to all the families. With more COVID cases already, most of us have either met someone who's gotten COVID or know someone who does. Sooner or later, every one of us will meet the virus. 
This means all the elderly will meet the virus too. And for them, the risk is very real. As I said earlier, COVID is now mainly a danger to seniors. 60 and above if you are not vaccinated, or 80 and above even if you are vaccinated. As cases grow, so will the number of elderly cases. If we reach 5,000 COVID cases a day, every day we can expect around 100 to become seriously ill. Not a small number. Our doctors and nurses do their best for every patient. Unfortunately, despite their best efforts, not every seriously ill patient will make it through. Sadly, quite a few will succumb. Just like with pneumonia. Every year, more than 4,000 people die of pneumonia in Singapore, mostly elderly and with other underlying illnesses. Over the next few weeks and months, we will likely see the number of COVID-related deaths continue to go up. There are several things we can do, and the elderly can do themselves, to protect them and reduce the numbers falling seriously ill. For the unvaccinated elderly, we'll continue trying hard to persuade and to vaccinate you. If you are above 60 and not yet vaccinated, you are at very high risk. Please get your jabs now. For the elderly who are already vaccinated, please get booster shots to strengthen your immunity. Vaccination has already lowered your risk substantially, but your risk is still much higher than someone younger. A booster shot will reduce your risk further. If you are a vaccinated senior, taking the booster reduces your risk of severe infection by more than 10 times. Or to put it in another way, to the virus, the booster shot makes a vaccinated 80-year-old look like a much younger vaccinated 50-plus-year-old. This is why I'm happy to see many seniors walking in for boosters as soon as you're eligible even before receiving your SMS invitations. Seniors themselves should take extra precautions. By all means, go out to exercise and get fresh air. But please cut back on makan, kopi and beer sessions with your friends and khakis. This will lower your exposure to the virus. We want you to stay well. Younger people living with seniors can also help to protect them. For instance, you can cut down your own social interactions for now and test yourself regularly to check that you are not bringing the virus home. Another group that parents are concerned about is children under 12. Vaccines have not yet been approved for such young children. As cases grow, parents are understandably anxious about their children catching the virus. Though the data shows that children with COVID seldom get seriously ill, parents are still worried. We are closely tracking the progress of vaccine trials on children in the US. We will start vaccinating children as soon as vaccines are approved for them. And our experts are satisfied that they are safe. 
This will likely be early next year. Meanwhile, we will build up our healthcare facilities to be able to provide those seriously ill the medical care they need, especially oxygen support and ICU care. However, there's a limit to how much we can expand. We can build new care facilities and purchase new equipment, and we're doing so. But we cannot easily find more and more doctors and nurses to staff them. That is why we have to moderate the surge in COVID cases. At the same time, as part of living with COVID, we must also connect ourselves back to the world. In particular, we must continue to reopen our borders safely. Companies and investors need to carry out regional and global business from Singapore. People working for them need to travel to earn a living. Students need to go on overseas attachments and internships without having to SHN each time. Families and friends will, once in a while, want to spend time together overseas. We have started vaccinated travel lanes with Germany and Brunei and just announced another with South Korea. These pilot projects have shown it is possible for vaccinated persons to travel safely while letting in very few COVID-19 positive cases. We are implementing more such arrangements, especially with countries whose COVID situations are stable. This will keep us connected to global supply chains and help to preserve Singapore's hub status. The next few months will be trying. I expect daily cases to continue rising for some weeks. Our healthcare system will still be under pressure. We can slow, but we cannot stop the Delta variant. At some point, the surge will level off and cases will start to decline. We don't know exactly when, but from the experience of other countries, hopefully within a month or so. As pressure eases off on the healthcare system, we can relax our restrictions. But we'll have to do so cautiously to avoid starting a new wave again. We must protect our healthcare system and workers at all costs in order to get through the pandemic safely. Let me say this to all our healthcare workers. I know the enormous stress you are under and the heavy load that you bear. You've been fighting so hard for so long. Now we are going through perhaps the most difficult phase of our journey, but it will not last indefinitely. After this surge peaks, things should get better. We're doing all we can to protect you and the healthcare system as we go through this wave. If we don't protect you, you can't protect us. On behalf of all Singaporeans, I thank you all. We are with you and we will give you our fullest support. And to all Singaporeans, we need your support too. Hospitals and healthcare workers are our last line of defence. Help us to protect them. Let each of us be the first line of defence.
continue to abide by prevailing SMMs and cut back on social activities to slow the spread of the virus. Get vaccinated if you haven't already done so. This will minimize your chances of falling seriously ill. And go for your booster shot when your turn comes. Self-test regularly to avoid infecting others, especially seniors around you. If you are infected, take up home recovery unless you have serious illness or vulnerable family members. Please don't rush to the A&E with mild symptoms. Let us reserve hospital capacity for those who need it most. Serious COVID cases, as well as others with serious illnesses. It's been a long campaign against COVID. The war continues. But we are in a much better position now than a year or even six months ago. Sometimes it may not feel like it, but we are making steady progress towards the new normal. After this surge stabilizes, we may still see future surges, especially if new variants emerge. We may have to tap on the brakes if cases again grow too fast to protect our healthcare system and healthcare workers. But we'll be better able to cope with future surges. Our capacity and processes continue to improve. As more people are exposed to the virus and recover, our immunity levels will increase. COVID will spread less quickly among us. With each passing day, we are getting stronger and more resilient. And we are more ready to live with the virus in our midst. How will we know when we have arrived at the new normal? It will be when we can ease off restrictions, have just light SMMs in place, and cases remain stable, perhaps hundreds a day, but not growing. When the hospitals can go back to business as usual. When we can resume doing the things we used to do and see crowds again without getting worried or feeling strange. A few countries have reached this state, for example, in Europe. But they have paid for it dearly, losing many lives along the way. It will take us at least three months and perhaps as long as six months to get to this new normal. COVID has surprised us many times before and may yet surprise us again. But get there, we will. In a safe and careful manner, with no one left behind to fend for themselves and with as few casualties as possible along the way. With everyone's cooperation, we will put the pandemic behind us, hopefully soon. We have the resources, the determination and the courage to get through this crisis. The pandemic has brought out the best in Singaporeans. We've stayed united and resolute despite the difficulties. Let's keep that up and continue working together to complete the journey towards COVID resilience. Thank you. COVID zero strategy to do our best to prevent every infection. It was necessary then, as vaccines were not available, and that was the only way to protect Singaporeans. With the emergence of a much more infectious Delta variant in Singapore as well as around the world, it is no longer possible to keep the number of infections very low without very tight safe management measures 
which are not sustainable over the long term. And as soon as we relax the measures, the number of cases will surge again, as we have seen over the last few months. However, with a high vaccination rate and ongoing efforts to deliver booster shots, the majority of our people will be protected from serious illness. It is now possible to live with COVID-19. But to do so, we will need to first adjust our healthcare protocols. Home recovery program will be the default for persons from 5 to 49 years old and vaccinated persons from 50 to 79 years old. Children aged 1 to 4 years old will also be eligible for HRP as long as they are assessed to be suitable. DMS will share more details later. Second, we will update our testing protocols. We will reserve PCR testing for symptomatic cases so that we can focus our testing resources on those who are ill and need medical attention. We will also continue to move towards making testing a way of life. This is part of our personal and social responsibility to minimize transmissions in the community. The Ministry of Health will conduct another round of distribution of antigen rapid test kits to households. I encourage everyone to self-test regularly and especially before visiting crowded places, visiting the elderly or children, returning to your workplace or attending school. If you do test positive on an ART kit, ART kit please stay at home, minimize social in interactions and test yourself regularly until a negative result is obtained. For those who feel unwell, please see a doctor. In addition, we will adopt a simpler approach to manage to managing those who have been identified as contacts of COVID-19 cases. Only health risk warnings will be issued to them. Minister Ong will share more details. Third, we will expand our vaccination differentiated safe management measures to further protect those who are not fully vaccinated. Based on our analysis, there have been a few settings frequent, frequently visited by a significant proportion of infected individuals, including those who are unvaccinated, who later on fell very ill. Such settings include F&B outlets, retail establishments, and shopping centers. Today, groups of two fully vaccinated persons are allowed to dine in at F&B settings. And from 13 October, this will also apply to hawker centers and coffee shops. Similarly, groups with uh, up to two persons will be allowed to enter shopping malls and attractions only if they are both fully vaccinated. As the global situation evolves, we will continue to review and adjust our border measures. We will introduce vaccinated travel lanes with Brunei. We have introduced vaccinated travel lanes with Brunei and Germany earlier and the pilots have gone well. With the experience gained from the pilots, we are now in a better position to extend the VTLs to more countries, including the UK and the US. Minister Swaran will elaborate more on this later. It has been close to a month since we started our booster program. As of 7 of October, 57% of individuals aged 50 to 59 years old and 72% of seniors aged 60 and above 
have either received or booked an appointment to receive their booster shot. We want to ensure that there continues to be high levels of protection against severe disease, particularly for those who work or live in high-risk settings. Therefore, we will accept the recommendation by the Expert Committee on COVID-19 Vaccination or EC19V to expand our booster program to include healthcare and frontline workers, persons and staff in institute institutionalized settings, and all persons aged 60 years and above, 30 years and above. I want to take this opportunity to thank our healthcare workers and other frontline workers for your hard work and dedication over the over these uh, 20 months. There's been a long journey and an especially stressful time for you and your families. We deeply appreciate your efforts throughout this crisis. With vaccination, we can now move towards living with COVID. We need to be cautious, but we need not live in fear. I would like, also like to assure everyone that we remain committed to our journey towards living with COVID-19 and become COVID resilient. There will be detours along the way as we try to reach, as we try to ride each wave of infection while minimizing the burden on our hospital system and the number of deaths. I hope for your patience and support as we work toward COVID-19 resilience together. Thank you. I will now call upon Minister Ong to give an update on the medical side. Ikang, over to you. DMS will do this briefing first. Thank you very much, Minister. In our daily press reports, we have shared about the rising number of community cases. We have exceeded a total of 3,000 cases reported daily in the last week. Yesterday, we reported 1,564 cases admitted in our hospitals and 2,825 cases in the community. There are daily fluctuations on a week-to-week -week basis in the numbers that we present, and often the numbers may dip over a weekend and increase in the early part of the week. So I look at other statistics as well, and one statistic I look at is seven-day moving sum uh, uh, figure of local cases. And for the period between the 9th of August to the 8th of October, I've seen that data trend upwards. The seven-day figure was 16,784 on the 8th of October, compared to 11,493 on the 1st of October and 7,583 on the 24th of September. The good news is that uh, we've observed that community case doubling time to progressively lengthen, and it's about one doubling time of 12 days or so. And with the community restrictions put in place to reduce group sizes and interactions in the community, we hope that this rise in community cases will continue to slow down further. The ratio of community cases compared to other cases arising in the dormitories or other related settings remains stable at about 1.5. And we continue to test and maintain that vigilance in the community. The stable ratio suggests to us that we are not missing out on a significant number of cases, despite progressively shifting our protocols from those that base heavily on PCR testing to detect COVID-19 infections to a more widespread use of ART testing. Our community sentinel surveillance which involves testing individuals in the community who present to primary care clinics with 
acute respiratory infections, or influenza-like illnesses continues to detect a high proportion of infections due to COVID-19. They suggest that we are not anywhere near the peak of the epidemic curve yet, nor are the community cases yet on the wane. Spread of COVID-19 infection is still continuing in settings where there are people gathering and engaging in mask-off activities, which may include consuming meals together. Of the community cases detected yesterday, about 15% were contributed from the testing of persons under quarantine. Another 6% was detected through routine regular testing of people at higher risk of exposure to infection across different settings. And about 35% of cases were picked up through symptomatic individuals presenting to doctors at SASH clinics, or otherwise known as swab and send home clinics. The remaining fraction comprises some who are on health risk warning or health risk alert, but others have yet to be properly characterised and will eventually contribute to the other proportions that I've shared. The various testing strategies continue to provide us with a good ability to detect people infected with COVID-19, and this will continue as we simplify and streamline our testing protocols in the community. As of yesterday, the 8th of October, more than 4,500 persons with COVID-19 infections had been successfully enrolled into the Home Recovery Program and more still continue to be uh, enrolled into the onboarding process. Over 1,000 persons have recovered from the infection and have been discharged from the Home Recovery Program. In all, about 75% of all COVID-19 cases are presently recovering at home or in the community isolation facilities that we have set up. Home recovery is the appropriate option for the majority of people with COVID-19 infection as they continue to do well and recover from their infection uneventfully. So please, if you are infected, do not go to the AME unless you are very unwell or have been advised by a GP to do so. See a GP at one of our SASH clinics instead. Our revised protocols will support you and allow you a good opportunity to recover at home if you have a mild infection or no symptoms. As the total number of cases in the community continues to increase, the number of persons with the more severe COVID-19 infection will also trend upwards. We've been working closely with all our hospitals to manage the number of cases that present to the hospital so that those with more severe infection can receive the appropriate care for their clinical needs. And yesterday, we reported 307 persons needing oxygen supplementation in the hospitals and 41 individuals admitted into the ICU for treatment of COVID-19 infection and its complications. For us, comparatively in Singapore, this is a high number compared to previous months. While the overall number of hospitalised cases has started to plateau off, with the opening of community treatment facilities and these other decanting measures, the number of cases in the ICU continue to rise. Our report yesterday evening highlighted that there were 41 cases presently in the ICU, and over the last two weeks, we've had 51 new cases admitted into the ICU. I looked at these cases to understand better who these patients were, and about two-thirds of them were either unvaccinated or had not completed their full vaccination. 
only about one in three of COVID-19 patients in the ICU were fully vaccinated. They all had concurrent medical conditions, which increased their risk of developing a severe infection and a bad outcome. There were two patients in the ICU who were younger than 50 years old, and they were both unvaccinated with these high-risk factors. We do have additional statistics that we look at. Because of the high vaccination coverage of our population, with more than 85% of our population having received at least one vaccination dose, and 83% of the population having completed their full vaccination regime, in terms of absolute numbers, it is not surprising to see more vaccinated persons having been detected to have COVID-19 infection. However, when we look at the proportion of vaccinated persons being infected out of that entire universe, so to speak, of vaccinated people, or the proportion of unvaccinated persons being infected out of all unvaccinated persons, there continues to be a stark difference in that those who are unvaccinated carry a significantly high risk of getting severe infection compared to that of a vaccinated person. And in a previous press conference, we had shared local data that suggested that relative risk to be as high as 14 times. This remains a strong reason for us to encourage more people who are sitting on the fence or against vaccination to reconsider. Our healthcare workers continue to work tirelessly to cater and care for the persons under their charge. They are stretched as they need to look after not only those directly admitted into the ICU for COVID-19 infections, but also other critically ill patients in the ICU. Yesterday, we reported six more persons who had passed away from complications related to COVID-19 infection. This is a sad statistic, and we should not be numb to the fact that when a person develops a severe COVID-19 infection, he does have a high risk of dying from that infection. And in all, 142 persons have passed away from COVID-19 infection or its complications. And we must do all we can to reduce the risk of persons getting a severe infection. Vaccination remains our key strategy. The expert committee on COVID-19 vaccinations has recognized that over time, more people will have their vaccination-induced protection start to wane and have made recommendations to extend the coverage of booster vaccinations after taking into account the need to protect the population from severe infections and death, the efficacy and the safety profile of the PSAR vaccines. So please take up the invitation to register and get your booster vaccinations when you receive your invitation to do so. We have progressively opened up more ICU bed capacity in our hospitals in anticipation of more patients with severe infection needing to be admitted into our hospitals and specifically into the ICU. We presently have over 180 ICU beds dedicated for COVID-19 patients and we are prepared to expand the hospital's ICU bed capacity further by adding an additional 100 beds if needed over the next few weeks. Help our healthcare workers to help you by reducing the unnecessary work for them. Most people with COVID-19 infection are well and will remain well. They should keep themselves away from others in the same household and stay at home to recover. And if they are unable to do so safely, we have the option of recovering in our community isolation facilities. So protect our staff and our hospitals so that we in healthcare can look after all Singaporeans better. Thank you. Thank you.
I will touch on three topics today. One is a reset of our healthcare protocols. Second, changes to the home recovery program. And lastly, an expansion of our booster program. Let me start with the first on healthcare protocols. Last week, I said that MOH is taking a holistic relook at our healthcare protocols, meaning what to do if you are tested positive, what to do if you are close contact or live with somebody who has been tested positive. So all the protocols we see today, they were developed over the past 20 months, mostly during a time when we were trying to eradicate the virus from our borders. But now we are in a very different situation. And these protocols need to be updated for the following reasons. First, it has become confusing and frustrating for most people. If you live with someone at home who came down with COVID-19, you are quarantined, you can't go out, you can't work, students can't take their exams. And once on quarantine, you need a PCR at the start and at the end. And at the end, you have to take public transport to a testing center. Sometimes there's a long queue. And that also added to the anxiety of people. And some preschool centers, for example, or companies, um, if there is an infected case, it may close down, further disrupting lives of many people. So some people tell me they are more afraid of these rules than COVID-19 itself. And this is a sentiment and a problem that need to be addressed. Second, the characteristic of the Delta variant and vaccinations have changed our risk calculation. With the Delta variant, viral loads tend to be higher than previous variants and rise up very fast. And that is one reason why the Delta variant is a lot more infectious. But there is a slight benefit to that because with higher viral loads, ART, including a cell swab, does a pretty good job at detecting someone who has been infected and is infectious. And that makes ART more useful now than before in terms of detecting COVID-19 patients. Third reason is that given ART is more useful now, there is a potential for us to replace 10-day quarantine for close contacts with a test protocol. Let me share some figures. Currently, about 10% of people under quarantine due to close contacts become infected. Out of that 10%, 8 percentage point are tested positive at the point of starting their quarantine. And 2% tested positive during their quarantine. Given this, a test at the beginning will catch the majority of close contacts who are already positive. And then repeated ART tests can detect most of the rest and the tail risk. A system like that is less watertight than today's quarantine system, but it can significantly and substantively manage the risk. And we also need to take into account that as we move towards living with COVID-19, 
if we restrict large numbers of people every day over prolonged periods to weed out the last tail risk, it is actually not sustainable and in fact very frustrating and disruptive to many people and families. So with these considerations in mind, we have reset all our testing and isolation procedures into a simple, what we call the one, two, three protocols. Because there are only three procedures from henceforth. And these three are like three lines of source codes or three building blocks that can cater, we believe, to almost all situations and circumstances. And they are as follows. Protocol one is when you are unwell and you have been tested positive. For example, you fell sick, you see a doctor, doctor prescribed a test and you turn out positive. What do you do? You are then required to stay home, isolate yourself and MOH will contact you on your recovery, whether through the home recovery program or be brought to a healthcare facility. And if you are vaccinated, you will be discharged in 10 days. If not, 14 days. There is no more day 6 PCR swap and discharge. Uh, there is no more day 6 PCR swap for early discharge. Discharge will then purely be time-based. So when the time is up, the alert in your trace together will be automatically lifted. Protocol 2, you are well no symptoms, but tested positive. This usually happens when you participate in a, um, uh, your company's or your employer's routine testing uh, operations, and then you test yourself positive. What do you do? This is an existing protocol that has been published repeatedly in the papers. So you, what you do is isolate yourself for 72 hours or three days, and thereafter, test negative for ART to exit isolation. And if your conditions worsens, see a doctor. And the doctor will test you and look at you and, and see you have been, you, if you have been infected. And if yes, follow protocol one. Final one, protocol three, you have received a text from MOH that you are a close contact could be a colleague, could be a family member. You use the notification to withdraw ART test kits at the vending machine, and then you follow a seven-day procedure. First day, you are required by law to test yourself with an ART kit and then upload the results. After that, test negative before you go out on the same day. On day seven, test yourself for the last time and then exit the procedure. Anytime you don't feel well, go see a doctor. And if positive, refer to protocol one. Anytime your ART test turns out positive, refer to protocol two. So with this, that is all. With this, we effectively merge quarantine healthcare warnings, healthcare alert into one test procedure. And we have effectively replaced lengthy quarantine period with a testing procedure that allows for flexibility without compromising public health.
The new procedure will be effective next Monday, 11th of October. I want to also urge various companies, employers, regulatory agencies to, to try to align existing practices to these protocols. I understand for many sectors and many employers, the concern about risk is higher and there is a need, they feel, to impose additional measures at the industry or at the company level. We fully understand that. So, for example, a higher tempo of routine, repeated, uh, routine testing based on ART tests, that's fully understandable. MOH, we ourselves do that in our hospitals. But we should refrain from imposing PCR swaps purely for surveillance of our employees who are not even displaying any symptoms. As for those already in the system and following current procedures, we will need to make some transitional arrangements for you. So if you are currently a COVID-19 patient, you will serve out the 10-day isolation if you are vaccinated or aged below 12, or 14-day isolation if you are not vaccinated. If you are currently a close contact and on the quarantine order, you will no longer need a PCR test. If you test yourself with an ART kit and the result is negative, you may go about your normal activities for the day. Do so until day 7 in accordance with Protocol 3. To provide more support for regular self-testing at home, MOH will be conducting another round of distribution of ART kits and this will last from 22nd October to 7th December 2021. This will be done via SingPost and each household will receive a package containing 10 ART self-test kits. And this is a significant change, significant change and a pivot in our strategy. All the complicated rules frustrates people and a constant reminder to people that COVID-19 is a scary disease. In fact, the vast majority of people who are infected exhibit mild symptoms or no symptoms. More than 98% mild symptoms or no symptoms. And our data shows clearly that the risk falls mainly on two groups. Those not vaccinated and age 60 and above, and all those age 80 and above. If we recognize this and then change the protocols, I believe we can lift the fear and confusion surrounding COVID-19. And we can all exercise personal responsibility and do our part to overcome the pandemic. And then focus our efforts on the two vulnerable groups I mentioned earlier. We now have a simple set of rules that we believe are effective, is effective and easy to understand. And I'm sure there will be an initial period of getting used to, but I'm confident that things will then settle down and everyone will find that this is much easier to follow. We have been talking about total defense and that the most important aspect is psychological defense. The reset of rules addresses the psychological state of our society as we overcome 
this pandemic. Let me move on to home recovery program. We continue to make progress on the HRP. We have beefed up the team further. Today, other than the minority whose contact numbers are inaccurate, we are able to call all infected persons and onboard them uh, within the day. As for incoming calls, we can now attend to the great majority of callers. The telemedicine team has also been boosted so that they can attend to those who need medical attention. Everyone involved has been working really hard to make the program work smoothly. I thank them for all their efforts and I also want to thank all of all the individuals who are on home recovery for your patience and understanding as we continue to improve the system. We wish we can be given more time to improve the processes and stabilize operations, but as we expect cases to rise further, we will need to press on, expand the program even as we continue to make improvements. So from next week, we will be making the following changes to the HRP. First, we will make HRP or Home Recovery Program the default setting for more groups of people, starting with unvaccinated persons aged 12 to 49 years old. This is because the risk of severe illnesses for younger though unvaccinated, unvaccinated individuals is low and it is safe for them to recover at home. Next are vaccinated infected persons aged 70 to 79 years. There is a concern about the risk of them falling in an unfamiliar environment and it is actually safer for them to recover in the familiar surroundings of their homes. However, as a precaution, individuals from this group will be assigned to a healthcare provider, such as one of our hospitals, who will help them monitor their health, including their oxygen level, closely during this isolation period. And if there's an emergency, we will ensure that they can be taken to a hospital promptly. Finally, our children aged 5 to 11 years old, as we found that COVID-19 is not a serious illness in the vast majority of this group. Furthermore, parents have always requested that these children be allowed to recover from home where there are caring, caregiving arrangements. As for children aged 1 to 4, we will continue to extend home recovery to them provided that they are first clinically assessed at the hospital to be suitable for home recovery. Second change, <coughs> we will gradually convert community care facilities and some government quarantine facilities to community isolation facilities or CIFs. I'm sorry to add one more acronym to the alphabet soup, but this is a necessary and sensible move. The CIFs will be part of the home recovery program operations. CIFs will allow those who are either not able to isolate themselves at home or who may have vulnerable persons at home to undergo recovery safely, isolated in a separate premise from their home in a CIF. 
And as more travelers perform their SHN at home, we could also potentially convert some SHN facilities to CIFs as well. Third, as we screen patients at the outset, we will also identify those who need more support and provide targeted help to them, such as more active monitoring through telemedicine and activating community volunteers to support them for their daily living. Finally, let me touch on boosters. The program is going well with about 370,000 booster doses administered to date and with a high take-up rate of 70% uh, amongst those whom we have invited. The expert committee, the EC19V, has studied international data on the efficacy and safety of booster shots amongst various segments of society and has recommended to extend the program. MOH agrees with their recommendations. And the additional groups are as follows. First, those aged 30 to 49 years old. Data has shown that a booster will enhance their protection against infection and severe due diseases due to COVID-19. And the risk due to severe adverse reaction is low and not different from the first two doses. Second, healthcare and frontline workers. Many have taken their shots earlier this year and are due to take their booster shots. Further, due to their job nature, they are potentially more exposed to the virus. At the initial stage, we will reach out to all our COVID-19 frontline workers in hospitals, nursing homes, welfare and adult disability homes, dormitories, isolation facilities, etc. We will also administer boosters to our travel frontline at the checkpoint and at the airport. After that, we will reach out to other frontline staffs and we will come up with the details later, but some possibilities are public transport drivers, taxi drivers, security guards, hawkers, uh, even retail assistants. But we expect many of them to have already been covered as we extend the age group to 30 and above for booster shots administration. The first batch of invitation will be sent out immediately after this press conference. I met our healthcare leaders yesterday, shared with them the trust of PM's broadcast today and the changes we are making to pivot away from treating COVID-19 as a threatening disease to everyone, to focusing on protecting the minority groups who are vulnerable. They understood and support the approach. But everyone also knows that even the circuit breaker now will not stop cases from continuing to rise. And so we will have to press on together. But we must all appreciate the tremendous pressure hospitals and healthcare workers are put under and are going through. So if I may reinforce what PM had said to our healthcare workers, it is a difficult time. This is probably the toughest part of our transition to a COVID-resilient nation. But we are taking various measures to alleviate the pressure. There is light at the end of the tunnel because no transmission wave will last forever. For everyone else, let's do our part to help our healthcare workers. Don't leave them 
to carry the burden as the last line of defense. We can do our part to stand up as the first line of defense. And we can do so by cutting back on our social activities, get seniors whom we know to vaccinate, get our own booster shots when we are invited, and please do not go to hospital if you are not seriously ill. Then hospitals can be preserved for people who are seriously ill, who need medical help the most, whether they are COVID-19 patients or not. Let me say a few of the key points in Mandarin.我身部在全面的检讨目前的医护程序包括你确诊后要怎么做你和确诊者有密切接触过后要怎么做这些都是过去很多个月制定下来的程序和规则那时候我们还是有一个清零政策但是我们现在的情况不一样了这些程序需要更新有三个原因第一程序呢导致很多人感到混乱很焦急如果家里有人感染的冠病其他家人住在一起的家人都要隔离十天不能出外工作学生不能出外考试有些学前教育中心因为有学生或老师被感染就得关闭几天也带来也对很多家长带来很大的不便有些人跟我说比起冠病他们更加害怕这些限制和规则这些问题我们需要解决第二德尔他的变种病毒的特性以及我们的非常高的接种率改变了我们的风险估计比起其他的病毒德尔他的病毒的确的这个病毒量的确比较高所以他们的感染性也更高但是病毒病毒量高的话我们的这个ART检测就更容易能够找出 被感染的人，所以ART就变成更加有用了。第三，因为ART用处多，我们可以考虑让密切接触者以一个检测的程序呢，取代今天的十天隔离规则。目前被隔离的人当中，大约百分之十被感染。百分之十之中呢，百分之八，就是百分之八八个百分点，是在隔离期开始的时候就被检测出来的。另外还有百分之二，在隔离期间被检测出来的。因此，隔离期开始进行检测，我们就可以找出大多数已经被感染的密出密
如果要长期限制这么多人，长期的隔离这么多人，以检测出这检测出这少部分的感染者，这个是对大家的影响太大了，没有办法延续下去。因为这些考量，我们重新制定了所有的检测和隔离程序。简单的说，就是程序一二三。细节我就不再多说，但是这三个程序呢，就像三个积木组合或者三个原料，能够应付应对大约所有的个人情况。这是一个显著的改变，也是我们应对冠病策略的一个转捩点。所有过于复杂的这个规则，导致人民着急不安。也这么复杂的规则，也不断的提醒大家，冠病是很恐怖的一个疾病。事实上，绝大多数被感染的人，病状是轻微的，甚至没有病状。我们的数据清楚的显示。风险最大的有两组人，第一就是六十岁以上还没有接种疫苗的人，第二是八十岁以上的人。绝大多数国人呢，冠病我们接种过后，对我们的威胁不是很大的。只要我们根据这些调整的程序，我相信我们可以解除人们对冠病所产生的恐惧或混乱的情况。而且大家都会比较有责任感，能够了解了程序，我们就能够尽自己的本分去对抗疫情。匹夫有责，这样的话，我们就可以把精力集中在我们的这些弱势群体、风险最高的群体。我们现在制定了一套有效、容易理解的规则，我相信接下来可能会有。一段的适应时期，但我有信心，大家在不久的将来就能够适应新的情况，也能够清楚的跟着规则走。我们提到国家的全面防卫 （total defense）， 而最重要的环节是心理防卫。我们在尝试克服疫情的这个时候。重新调整程序，对整个社会的心理状况是非常关键的。谢谢。Good afternoon. PM has set out our understanding of the current situation, our strategy for. This phase of the pandemic and our path forward to a new normal. In particular, as part of living with COVID-19, PM has stressed the importance of opening our borders safely. Let me now outline our next steps in this regard. The Ministry of Health has established a risk-based categorization of countries and regions with attendant border measures. It is based on a public health assessment of a country or region's COVID-19 situation, including their infection rate and vaccination coverage. 
It is the baseline setting upon which we assess further reopening moves. We review this framework regularly as the COVID-19 situation here and abroad continues to evolve. Specifically, countries such as Denmark, France, Italy, Netherlands and Spain have been moved to Category 2 from the 7th of October. And with effect from the 13th of October, more countries, including the US and UK, will also come under Category 2. Against this backdrop, I will lay out our next steps to reopen our borders through the expansion of the vaccinated travel lanes. On 8 September this year, we commenced our first vaccinated travel lanes with Germany and Brunei, which allowed fully vaccinated travelers from these two countries to enter Singapore without quarantine requirements. <clears throat> Prior to this, we had reopened our borders only to visitors from very low-risk countries and regions in Category 1, such as mainland China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Macau. The VTLs with Germany and Brunei were our first reopenings to general travelers. They were designed with a specific set of safeguards, including proof of vaccination and repeated testing. This was part of our cautious, calibrated approach to reopening our borders while upholding our public health objectives. Over the past month, the various stakeholders, including airlines, Changi Airport, and our government agencies, have gained valuable experience through the implementation of the VTL. This includes putting in place an application process for visitors, checking on vaccination status, managing arrivals in Changi Airport, and tracking compliance with the prescribed testing regime. We have monitored the VTL scheme closely and are encouraged by the outcomes. As of 8 October yesterday, more than 3,100 travellers from Germany and Brunei have entered Singapore via the vaccinated travel lanes. All travellers have complied with the testing regime, including the requirement to be tested post-arrival on days 3 and 7. There have only been two imported cases. Both were detected at the point of arrival by their PCR test and were isolated before interaction with the general community. With the experience and confidence gained from these initial VTLs, we are now ready to expand the scheme to more Category 2 countries and regions, and I will now outline our next set of moves. First, as a natural extension of the VTL with Germany, we will introduce vaccinated travel lanes with six other European countries, namely Denmark, France, Italy, Netherlands, Spain, and the United Kingdom. Secondly, we will expand the vaccinated travel lanes to two Category 2 countries in North America, namely Canada and the U.S. All eight countries are already open to travelers from Singapore, so the VTLs will restore two-way quarantine-free travel between Singapore and them. We will op open applications for the VTLs with these countries on the 12th of October, approved 
VTL travelers can enter Singapore from the 19th of October. Third, we have announced the launch of a VTL arrangement with the Republic of Korea. The ROK is currently closed to general travelers from most parts of the world, including Singapore, except for specific groups such as those traveling for business, official or compassionate reasons. Our discussions with the ROK to commence quarantine-free bilateral travel were concluded yesterday at my meeting with ROK Minister No Hyung Kuk. I am pleased that we have agreed to jointly establish VTLs between our two countries. We will open applications for the VTL with the ROK on 8th of November. Approved travellers from the ROK can enter Singapore from the 15th of November, and similarly approved VTL travellers from Singapore may enter the ROK from the 15th of November. This is a significant agreement, especially as it is the first such travel arrangement between two major aviation hubs in Asia. We hope that it will pave the way for more countries in our part of the world to safely reopen their borders to each other. In tandem with these moves, we have reviewed and will update our current safeguards under the vaccinated travel lanes. First, proof of vaccination. We require VTL travelers to present verifiable and authenticated digital proof of vaccination as a precondition for entry. The European and Asian VTL countries whom I have listed all issue national digital vaccination certificates. For Canada and the US, we will start by accepting digital vaccination certificates issued in the Smart Health Card format on the Common Trust Network. This will enable our border agencies to read and verify their digital vaccination certificates. We will continue working with our counterparts to progressively include more digital certificate formats. Henceforth, we will also recognize proof of vaccination issued in any VTL country for travel under the VTLs. This means that a traveler could have been vaccinated in France and traveled to Singapore under the German VTL. Second, travel history. Currently, VTL travelers must have remained in the country of departure and or Singapore in the 14 days prior to the departure for Singapore. With the expansion of VTLs to countries and regions of a similar risk profile, we will accept a 14-day travel history in any of the VTL countries and or Singapore. This change will give travelers greater flexibility in planning their itineraries. Third, testing regime. Currently, VTL travelers are required to take two PCR tests on the third and seventh day after arrival, in addition to a pre-departure and an on-arrival PCR test. After further consultation with the Ministry of Health, only two tests will be required of VTL passengers. A negative PCR test result taken 48 hours prior to departure and an on-arrival PCR test. In addition, VTL travelers will still be required to take designated flights 
from their country of departure. We will start with a total of up to 2,500 daily arrivals across the nine VTL countries that I've just announced. Together with the two current VTLs, this means up to 3,000 travelers may enter Singapore daily through the vaccinated travel links. We will monitor the incidence rate, observe the demand before deciding on any further increases in capacity. I have outlined our plans to extend VTLs to nine more Category 2 countries. When fully implemented, we would have established vaccinated travel lanes with 11 countries, two in North America, seven in Europe, and two in Asia. Collectively, these countries accounted for about 10% of our pre-COVID annual passenger arrivals at Changi Airport. They rank among our top 20 trading partners. They have significant investments, a strong business presence, and sizable communities in Singapore. It is, therefore, important that we reconnect with them early. While still a far cry from where we were pre-COVID, this is a significant step in the reopening of our borders and crucial to reclaiming and rebuilding our status as an international aviation hub with global connectivity. We aim to restore safe two-way quarantine-free travel with more countries and regions from around the world and are engaged in several discussions to that end. When we announced the VTLs with Germany and Brunei, I emphasized that we would be cautious and calibrated in our approach, carefully assessing the risk and operational implications. That is why we have taken the time to closely monitor the implementation of our initial vaccinated travel lanes before deciding on these latest moves. The experience over the past month has given us the confidence that we can safely extend the scheme to other Category 2 countries. As before, we will ensure that all stakeholders have adequate time to adapt and run in their processes. This will allow us to progressively and confidently extend the vaccinated travel lane scheme while protecting the safety of our people. More broadly, as PM has explained, we are charting a course for the new normal. Reopening our borders is integral to this new normal. Singapore's survival and success depends on being open and connected to the world. Companies and investors need to be able to transact regional and international business from Singapore. Executives must be able to travel for their work if we are to sustain the good jobs that local and multinational companies provide Singaporeans. Students must be able to travel for education, industry attachments and internships, and then return home. And families must be able to reconnect after what has been a prolonged period of physical separation. 
We must therefore be resolute and press on with the reopening of our borders while staying vigilant with all the essential public health safeguards. This is how we must and will move forward to protect our lives and livelihoods, to learn to live with the virus and to become a COVID-resilient nation. Good afternoon. We are two weeks into the stabilization phase, and I want to thank everyone for your cooperation with the safe management measures. Through our collective efforts, we have been able to slow down the rate of transmission. And that means that while cases are continuing to rise, they are doing so at a slower rate. This has given a much needed breather for all our healthcare workers. And I join my colleagues in thanking all our frontliners in our hospitals and healthcare system. We truly appreciate your contributions, hard work, and sacrifices. And we will do everything we can to support you during this difficult time. As and when the pressure on our healthcare system eases, we will correspondingly ease the stabilization measures. For now, our healthcare system and workers remain under tremendous stresses and pressures. And so the stabilization measures remain necessary. But we will make one adjustment to the measures which Minister Gan highlighted just now, and that is to expand the vaccine-differentiated safe management measures we have today. In other words, we will expand vaccine-differentiated differentiated SMMs to hawker centres, coffee shops, shopping malls and attractions. This means that only fully vaccinated persons can enter hawker centres and coffee shops for dining in in a group of two persons. Those who are not vaccinated can enter these venues, but only to order food for takeout. This change will take effect on 13th of October, next Wednesday. We are giving more time for the establishments to put in place the necessary systems, but we would strongly encourage enterprises that are able to implement this earlier to do so. There will be no change for now to the rest of the stabilization measures. I know there are some who would like us to move faster to relax the measures. They ask if we are going to live with COVID, why should we hold back the relaxation? And in particular, why are we holding back on account of individuals who have deliberately chosen not to be vaccinated? Well, we are concerned about our unvaccinated seniors and we are doing, going all out to engage them and reach out to them. But our concern goes beyond these unvaccinated individuals. In fact, many, many Singaporeans are genuinely concerned also about the health and well-being of their parents and their grandparents who are vaccinated, as well as the safety of their young children who remain ineligible for vaccines during this time. So I want to assure everyone that we are taking all of your considerations to heart 
as we develop our COVID responses and strategies. We know that we can no longer stamp out the virus. At the same time, we will manage the infection situation so that it does not overwhelm our healthcare system. We want to ensure that we will always have the ability to provide medical care to anyone who falls seriously ill from COVID-19. And that's why we will ease out of our stabilization measures in a calibrated manner. In settings where the risks are acceptable, we will try to move early. And that includes expanding our vaccinated travel lanes, as you heard from Minister Iswaran just now. In settings where the risks are higher, we will have to consider any changes more carefully to avoid another wave of infection that can overwhelm our healthcare system. So we will continue to monitor the situation closely and we will provide updates on any adjustments to our stabilization measures in the next one to two weeks. To conclude, we will continue to ride this wave and learn to live with COVID-19. What's important is for all of us in Singapore to embrace a new mindset psychologically. We must learn not to be fearful of COVID, to stay calm when we are confronted with the virus, and to continue to uphold individual and social responsibility in all our actions. With that mindset and spirit, we can all continue to move forward together in our journey towards a COVID-resilient nation. Thank you. Thank you, Ministers and DMS. We'll now begin with the Q&A segment. Could we have the first question from The Straits Times? Selma, please. Hello, uh, I'm Salma Khalik from The Straits Times. Both the measures, the streamlining of protocols and the opening of borders are very welcome. I understand that BTL is an arrangement between two countries and Minister Swaran said more of these will be uh, forthcoming. But meanwhile, can't Singapore open up unilaterally if necessary to vaccinated uh, travelers who can prove their vaccine status? Uh, and from countries with very low rates of COVID-19. Right now, category two and category three uh, countries, when visitors come in, they still have to isolate for seven days, even when they're fully vaccinated and have negative PCR tests before they leave the country and on arrival. Is this really necessary? Thank you for the question, Salma. First, we have already opened, as I said earlier, unilaterally to a group of low-risk countries and regions. This includes mainland China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Macau. And secondly, as I have also outlined, MOH has established the risk framework within which countries fall and in accordance with that, the kind of border measures that travelers from those countries and regions have to comply. The vaccinated travel lanes build on that. They are an additional facility to 
basically enable even freer travel, essentially quarantine-free bilateral travel. On your specific question of whether we can consider moving unilaterally on more countries, it is certainly something that we can consider, but whether and how we do so is a function of a variety of considerations. It includes the assessment from a public health perspective, which is where we will work with the Ministry of Health and our specialists and experts, but it also will then rest on the specific assessments we have of the operational elements as well in facilitating this. But I would not rule it out, but neither do I want to commit to that at this stage because we have moved on a significant group of countries in this set of measures and we would want to ensure that the implementation of these measures is done well in accordance with our expectation so that then we can further extend the scheme whether unilaterally or bilaterally with confidence. Thank you, Minister. Can we have the next question from Zhao Bao, Kang Wei? Hi, good afternoon, Ministers at DMS. Kang Wei from Zhao Bao here. So based on MOH press release yesterday on the hospital capacity, the ICU occupancy of the critically ill is around 23.5%. May we ask how we derive that figure and what would be done to further increase our ICU capacity? Also, based on the new healthcare protocol, we'll be seeing less people taking the PCR test, which is currently the default way of the indicating a number of confirmed cases. So how would this affect our num daily confirmed case number and whether this daily confirmed case number will be a good indicator of our situation? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that question. I'll, I'll first address uh, the question concerning uh, our ICU capacity. Uh, we look at our ICU capacity in a variety of different ways. Uh, first of all, we uh, look at the overall number of uh, ICU beds in service, uh, and then we uh, look at what that utilization rate is. Uh, we look at the, the uh, proportion of beds that we've allocated, uh, uh, dedicated for COVID-19 uh, patients, and we look at what that occupancy rate is. And out of the proportion of patients that are admitted in hospital, we uh, drill down further to look at those who are in the ICU, specifically for management of COVID-19 infection and its uh, uh, complications. Uh, and that was how we derived the, the number you saw. And we had uh, 41 patients at this point in time reported in the ICU uh, uh, being looked after. Uh, however, uh, while this is the number of patients that are uh, having COVID-19 infection and they are seriously ill in the ICU that require help, our healthcare workers continue to look after other patients in the ICU, which uh, are not reflected in our normal press releases. This includes uh, patients who are in uh, for a variety of other medical conditions but have medical emergencies that warrant uh, a higher degree of, uh, of uh, care to be provided to them. That would include some patients who have heart attacks, strokes, uh, other uh, medical emergencies that may prevail, severe infections uh, that uh, are present, and they all need the same amount of vigilant monitoring, sometimes even uh, oxygen support therapy and ventilation antibiotics and other medications as well. So when we take that into account and we include those uh, who are admitted into the ICU because of the COVID-19 infection, you will realize that our healthcare workers are extremely busy 
and they've been working at that high level of intensity for many months. They are uh, uh, getting tired uh, of working at that high pace. We also have some patients with COVID-19 infection who are on the cusp of or, or potentially deteriorating. They have a more severe infection. They have, at that point in time, a need for some oxygen supplementation, but they may be able to get away with oxygen delivered through a mask or through what we describe as nasal cannula, directed, uh, directing oxygen towards the, the nose and the nostrils. But if they deteriorate further, they require sometimes additional uh, help, including a mechanical ven ventilation. And we will admit them preemptively into the ICU for close monitoring. And in case they deteriorate, they are in the best setting for us then to resuscitate them and provide them with the treatment they require. So this uh, is the entire continuum of different patients they are in. The 41 uh, patients we described is only a subset of the workload of the number of patients in the ICU that uh, our uh, healthcare workers have to, in fact, uh, look after. Uh, maybe I take the second question on case counts. I think all countries that has gone through a big wave like that face the same challenge, which is you can't detect every single case because there are so many out there. And you try your best to use different kinds of tests and detect them and report them. And every country still do that. And we are starting to face that challenge. But notwithstanding, we do our best through all our surveillance and all our uh, different test regimes to detect the cases. But what's behind the question is more important, which is that there comes a stage when case numbers are high and you can't report every case because many of the cases actually they have mild or no symptoms. They don't even know. Some of them, I suspect, don't even know that they have detected and others find it so mild they thought it's a common cold and they just recover by themselves. So that is the nature of the challenge. But on the other hand, that is, is also good news in the sense that you are one step closer to endemicity. And that's what it's like to be endemic, like influenza. We don't count influenza, not chicken pox. Um, but because for many people, it has no long, it's no longer a serious disease. Thank you, Minister and DMS. Can we have the next question from Channel News Asia? Sherlyn, please. Hi, Ministers and DMS. Um, I have a question about Prime Minister's earlier statement that we might take about three to six months to get to a new normal. So does that mean that Singapore will continue to be under this current stabilisation phase? And how did that time frame came, uh, come about? And along the way, so what kind of benchmarks or milestones are we looking out for? Thank you. What Prime Minister talked about with regard to this three to six months period was something that we had looked at based on our discussions with our experts, with our scientists, um, academics from the Sauce Hawk School, as well as the experiences in other countries. And importantly, when you look at many of the European countries, you will find that they have both high vaccination rates and a certain level of natural immunity, meaning a certain proportion of their people would have caught the virus. Many of them did so last year when they experienced their large waves. 
And when these countries have both high vaccination and a sufficiently high level of natural immunity, and they started to reopen their economies and societies, some of them did not see a resurgence in cases. Instead, cases just stabilized at a you know, fairly new level, not very high, but just continued circulating, but it, it remained stable. You see this in places in Europe, and that's something that we think we might get to in three to six months. It does not mean that we will remain static at where we are in terms of our measures for the next three to six months. As I highlighted, we are continually reviewing and adjusting our measures in a calibrated way based on risk and always with the consideration that we do not want to inadvertently cause a resurgence of cases that might overwhelm our healthcare system. So, as I mentioned, we will do this uh, in a calibrated manner, looking at the risk settings. In some risk settings which we think are acceptable, we will move earlier, like in travel. And in other areas where the risk settings may be somewhat higher, we will consider carefully. And we will give an update on possible adjustments that we might make in some of our stabilization measures within the next one to two weeks. So this will be a continuous process of reviewing the infection situation, our healthcare system, and then making these adjustments over the coming weeks. Thank you, Minister. Can we now have the next question from Channel 8? Si Xuan, please. Hello, good afternoon, ministers and DMS. As mentioned, we are likely to anticipate more severe cases, especially among the unvaccinated and the elderly. So, which means we also need more healthcare manpower. Looking at the current effort to expand the healthcare manpower is mainly internal redeployment or external short-term uh, recruitment. So, as we are expecting COVID to be a long fight, are there any long-term or more sustainable plan or arrangement for this? Thank you. I can take it. Um, I, I don't know what's the time horizon you think of when you say long term. In the long term, I think we can live with COVID and things will settle down and manpower manning should go back to what is normal. Our challenge is a short term one. Going through this particular wave, uh, not crested yet and we don't know how long more it will last two weeks, four weeks, a month or more. Um, and this is the period where it is most difficult on all our healthcare institutions and our healthcare workers. So we are doing several things. Uh, you are familiar with them. Right sighting is critical. If we can right sight everyone, every patient, then we can focus our manpower on those who are vulnerable and need medical attention the most and we are continuing to refine and improve our approach. Second is we call out to volunteers, and it has been most heartwarming. We have 900 volunteers stepped up, uh, medical personnel, healthcare workers, and we are, MOH is in the process of matching them to different healthcare settings so that they can also contribute. What we mentioned earlier about um, the changes in healthcare protocol, it also helped because it free up resources 
for swabbers that's been doing a lot more PCR testing, I think some of that resources becomes available. Uh, as we do our vaccinations, and vaccination level is not so high now, vaccination come down, you, you will notice that recently we closed down four vaccination centers. So booster, while we administer booster, the tempo is not as high as when we were delivering our primary doses. That can also free up nursing resources, doctors' resources that can be deployed to where it's needed most. Lastly, we have been continuously reaching out to private sector, uh, private hospitals to also help us, and they have been stepping forward to help. And so it's by mobilizing the entire system that we are doing our best to pull through this wave that's coming that has not been crested yet. Thank you, Minister. Can we now take the next question from Banama Masita, please? Hi, Ministers and uh, DMS. Um, I do hope this question is relevant. Uh, uh, understand that uh, Singapore is uh, placing Malaysia under Category 4, uh, but uh, would Singapore consider having a different setting with Johor in particular? Uh, because the state is currently uh, wrapping up the vaccination, hoping in 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 hope that um, uh, to open border with Singapore um, for the economy and the uh, workers that commute uh, previously. Thank you. Thank you. We continuously review our border measures. In fact, we update the categories that we have for different countries on a periodic basis every two weeks. As we do so, we take into account the infection situation in these places as well as the vaccination status. So we will certainly do that with regard to Malaysia, but in fact for countries everywhere. It will be a continuous process. And as the situation in Malaysia improves, I have no doubt that over time it will be reflected uh, in the categories that it is in, from Cat 4 perhaps eventually to a different category um, before too long. On the specific issue of Johor, I think that's not just you know, travel by air, but there are also land links between Singapore and Johor. And so we understand that there are um, people on both sides of the causeway who would like to travel to visit families or even to travel for work. But the volume of people who are traveling between both sides can be very large if you look at what it was before COVID. So the order of risk is quite different from air travel and we have to um, look at this differently and consider it separately. But we are indeed having discussions with our counterparts in Malaysia on both sets of issues, air travel as well as travel across uh, by land, and we will continue to update our measures accordingly. Let me just add two sentences to it. Thank you for the question. I think we all know that Singapore and Malaysia, we are very close neighbours, and our borders, our air link, our border link and causeway used to be the busiest in the world. And there are just so much to and fro, uh, so much interactions, so many families living on both sides of our borders. And so it is really our common desire, and I think it's both countries' common desire to re-establish connection as early as we can. Malaysia is on the downward trend of your wave. We are still on the upward trend, but let's hope 
in the very near future, we can start having concrete actions to re-establish our connections and our border openings. If I may add, I mentioned specifically that uh, we continue our engagement and discussions with several countries because we fully intend to further reopen our borders in the cautious and calibrated manner that we have outlined, but always with a view towards reopening and reconnecting. And in that regard, certainly our immediate neighbours are an important part of those ongoing engagements. Thank you, Ministers. We will now take the last two questions. Next, can we have Nikkei Mayuko, please? Yes, hello. Thank you very much for taking my questions. Um, I would like to know if um, the uh, VTL, the vac vaccinated travel lane, is the um, uh, it's a temporary form of uh, border re border reopening, or this looks like staying for a long term. Um, um, so this is going to be the the new normal for the international travel. Um, if so, um, is ch ch do children just have to wait for the time when they are allowed to uh, allowed to to be vaccinated? And if I can ask, um, is Japan be uh, part of the consideration of uh, uh, you know similar treatment like uh, Korea? Thank you. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, there are several points to your, your question. Firstly, um, on how we can move forward, the vaccinated travel lanes really are part of an initial process because we have to build back confidence in international aviation. And in order to do that, the vaccinated travel lanes allow us to start establishing these footholds and these flows which we can build on. But eventually, we may converge on a different formulation to accommodate much larger numbers. But right now, we think that this is a good way to facilitate the travel between countries on a mutually beneficial basis. Um, it's, uh, at this point, because of the vaccination requirement, uh, when you look at the Singapore VTLs, uh, the children under the age of 12 who are not vaccinated would not be eligible, but there still remain flights and options uh, for non-vaccinated travelers as well. So it, they're not precluded from travel, but at this juncture, we are constraining the vaccinated travel lanes, as the name suggests, to those who have been fully vaccinated. Finally, on uh, Japan and possibly other countries, can we extend this? It is something we are certainly uh, intent on. We are involved in a range of discussions on this matter and we will be able to give further updates in due course. Thank you, Minister. And can we have the final question from today? Janice, please. Hi, good afternoon. Um, my question is uh, relating to the um, daily um, reporting, uh, the, the, the reporting of the daily case count. So with the move uh, from PCR testing to ART is the primary mode of testing, 
would MOH still be reporting the daily case count? And if not, uh, how will we continue to have an accurate picture of Singapore's COVID situation if the reported daily numbers doesn't capture all cases since most of us are going to be using ART going forward? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Janice. Uh, I think this is a question that uh, many people might be interested in. Uh, we continue to track all uh, uh, in, uh, cases that are brought to our attention uh, that are important to us as well. Uh, and uh, reporting daily counts uh, would uh, still remain at this point in time. But increasingly, as uh, time moves on, we want to focus on uh, what is more important. The majority of people have very mild infections or are asymptomatic. They have an excellent cause. They don't have any complications and recover very uneventfully. What we want to focus is on then that remaining 2% of, of uh, cases that do have uh, additional high risk factors who may end up uh, um, requiring uh, care in our hospitals or community treatment facilities. They may require oxygen supplementation or even admission into the ICU. So we will progressively focus a lot more uh, on uh, these uh, numbers because these are the people who have more severe infection that do require uh, more care, uh, more utilization of our healthcare resources, and we need to invest a lot more to making sure that they have as best an outcome as is possible. So progressively, we will shift our mindset towards focusing on those who do need uh, uh, our care. Uh, and and uh, while we continue to track uh, how the epidemic is going, how the community cases are going, uh, but we'll be relying on different indicators, not necessarily only um, PCR test results and reports on its own. We continue to maintain our sentinel uh, surveillance in the community, and this will give us a good sense of what the situation is like in the community uh, when we look at the uh, people who report or present themselves to GP clinics with respiratory symptoms and it will allow us to better understand what is the prevalence of COVID-19 infection, how it is spreading in the community, and whether or not uh, it's uh, giving rise to clusters of cases in, in various different settings. Uh, so we will track this, but we are going to be looking at a wider range of indicators uh, to have a better reflection of what the situation is, and we will be focusing more specifically on those where um, we do need to invest more care, more attention to assure a better outcome for them. If I may make a last remark, what's the difference? The top line, which is the infection number, comprises many people now vaccinated, mild or no symptoms. And we monitor that number to the best of our abilities. But they are mild or no symptoms, many of them, great majority, 98%. The bottom line is where lives are at stake. People who died, people who are in ICU or requiring intensive care. And this is where I believe our focus should be, as uh, Kenneth had mentioned. And we will continue to try our best to care for all of them. For the 142 that have passed away, I think the MTF, all of us, extend our condolences to their families. And for others, MOH, all our hospitals, all our medical personnel and healthcare workers, we will always do our best to give you the best possible care and do our best to make sure uh, that nobody is left without proper care. Thank you. Thank you, Minister and DMS. We have now come to the end of the press conference. 
Thank you and have a good day ahead. Now you just heard from the COVID-19 Multi-Ministry Task Force. You can watch the full press conference on the Straits Times' YouTube channel and remember to subscribe by hitting the button below. I'll be back shortly with an expert for an analysis on today's announcements. So see you then.